0: Welcome to Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and today I'm joined by Dwyer Murphy to talk about his about to be published crime fiction novel, An Honest Living. In a recent email exchange, I pointed out that because he is the editor in chief of the incredibly comprehensive crimereads.com and swims in oceans of writer interviews, a few of which he's assigned to me, this sort of exercise of being interviewed is a bit of a busman's holiday for him. So I have to thank you, Dwyer, and welcome you to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This is a real treat. And as I told you in our email uh, correspondence, I love the expression bus holiday so much. I, I suspect I use it more than almost any other person alive. I don't know why, but I find occasions maybe every other day to, to use it. So thank you for introducing me with it. That's really a, a treat.
0: Well, uh, maybe you and I are in a contest to see who uses the expression more. All right. So in a recent tweet, you described An Honest Living as a fever dream that took place during lockdown and your wife's pregnancy. But to me, it reads more like a journey and an odyssey, as it were, that moves through time and space. In fact, one of the characters, a Venezuelan poet, is named Ulysses. Uh, So the space mostly being traversed is the boroughs of New York City, although there is an excursion upstate. And the time span is approximately one rotation of the planet. So talk about the journey that took place during An Honest Living.
1: Well, as you you guessed, I think uh, this, it really was intended to be that kind of odyssey through New York City, which in my mind, that kind of, uh, there's a really nice symmetry between a certain type of novel that I think People think of it as like a flanner novel, like somebody who's walking around the city and hitting the boulevards. That type of fiction and uh, PI fiction have so much in common. You know, it's about a narrator or a perspective getting out into a city, walking around, uh, experiencing the different lives that are carried on through that city. And for this kind of novel, what I really wanted was essentially an accidental Private investigator, somebody who, in this case, is a a corporate law washout who is kind of taking on whatever jobs he can to to make a living and to pay his bills, and that gets him into some ethically or morally dubious uh, situations. And he's got to kind of take what what cases will come in and whatever's going to pay cash. And this one happens to be a book journey. And one of the reasons I wanted to do that is the type of the version of New York City, everybody's got a different version of New York City that they experience and that kind of crystallized in their minds. And I think for most people, it's the one that you experience uh, when you first arrive in the city, whether you're a native or you come in, you know, after college or in law school, like I did, I was in my 20s. And the version of New York that I got was almost exclusively bookstores and movie theaters. And that's That's how I still think of the city. I've lived there for 15 years and every block that I walk down, whether it's Manhattan or Brooklyn still tends to remind me of either a book I picked up in a used shop one day uh, or a a movie theater line I was waiting on and somebody I bumped into that, you know, there's a lot of scenes where just characters are hanging around outside the film forum or Angelica and that's, driving some part of the plot here and that that's the version of New York I wanted now I I think that we're sort of maybe into a different era because you know people don't really go out to movie theaters anymore and wait on those lines and bookstores have changed significantly although fortunately in New York there's still such a vibrant part of the the community at large, and there's so many great independent bookstores there uh, you can still kind of experience the city way but to me it felt like that's how that's how I traveled around the city and how I experienced it was through these bookshops and movie theaters. And uh, yeah, I wanted the characters to to be out and about, to be experiencing uh, this mystery that kind of seeps into their everyday lives through through stories, through books and movies.
0: Well, also diners and bars and cabarets that may or may not be licensed. I loved that explanation of. Why you can't dance at a bar?
1: Well, the cabaret laws in New York, they're crazy. They've been sort of reformed in the time period since this uh, book was set to now, but really those reforms are pretty recent. And it is, it's still shockingly difficult to dance places in, in New York City. You can really get the, the owner of that establishment in a lot of trouble if you just sort of burst into dance, which, I really wanted my characters to do. It was very important to me that this be a crime novel full of people dancing because I love that tradition in old noir movies. They're, you know, think of like Asphalt Jungle or something with like these iconic dance scenes that just work their way into into the story. And I think that people forget sometimes that crime fiction can be this tradition where really strange bonkers sensual peculiar things are happening on the periphery of the story at any moment and so I wanted my characters to to be involved in dancing a lot and if you do that in New York City you might be uh you might be committing a crime sometimes or causing somebody else to get into some legal hot water so yeah there's a scene early on where they're at uh you know at a place that has some a samba band playing and this was Based on a real, real place that used to be underneath the Williamsburg Bridge. I think still is maybe under a different name. And uh, you can't have samba going without some dancing. So inevitably, you're in a you're in a you're in a criminal milieu whenever there's dancing involved in New York City. But it's uh I that's just part of my kind of love of the city. And those laws were originally designed to kind of uh. To try to suppress uh, culture in Black and Latin neighborhoods in New York, and that's how those laws were used for a long time. These cabaret laws were just uh, really insane in New York, and like I said, they've sort of they've begun to reform them, but they haven't made nearly enough progress. Maybe that will be my my new cause after this book comes out is that I need to I need to get New York uh, dancing laws really really fixed up.
0: Um. So I have to ask, you know, you spend your working life with crime fiction on all its platforms, crimereads.com covers uh, books, certainly short stories, uh, television and movies. So uh, I've been where you are to a certain extent. And was it difficult emptying your mind to let the novel come through your imagination, you know, down your arms and out your fingers?
1: That's a great question. I think that uh so crime is yeah it's fully uh immersed in the world say of crime fiction and it really it means that my day job for you know, lack of a better word is to just read absolutely everything that's coming out in the crime fiction world and to make myself familiar with all these new writers which is just a complete joy, a treat. And I think when it came time to to write my own novel, it really was just a motivating factor. I'm so excited by the state of the crime fiction community and world these days and what people are doing with their books that I just wanted to be a part of it. So I there was maybe an earlier period in my career where I was doing different jobs around the literary world and before that as a lawyer. And I I think maybe I I had in mind that when I did if I ever wrote a novel, it would be maybe something very different than this. But to get to expose myself for years now to everything vibrant and interesting and odd that's happening in the crime fiction world meant that I was just incredibly motivated to to get my to get my ass in gear and uh, try to try my hands at this and see if, see if I could add something to it and be be a part of it in a new way. So it was very exciting and I, I it is a bit odd to sort of. To experience the crime fiction community in a new way and to, to get to be an author within that. It's a, it's a privilege. There's just so much exciting stuff happening right now.
0: Sarah Weinman, who I'm sure you follow on Twitter and you probably know, and I've had the pleasure of meeting her a few times. One of her recent tweets, she brought up the subject of forever retiring, the phrase transcends the ja- the genre. And so I live in a world where crime fiction isn't a genre. It's that, again, you know, I do live in a fantasy, I guess. So what do you think about crime fiction being considered a lesser bobka by the literary world?
1: I think that probably that is, I would say that today that is less the case than ever. But I don't know, you still do sort of run into some of that genre snobbery or like, order sometimes I know so Sarah was Sarah Weinman was one of our original contributing editors to Crime Reads and I can remember sitting down with her before we even launched the website and talking about what we had in mind for this thing because she is sort of this voice in the crime fiction world and we wanted to talk with her and find out what she might want from a site like this and I'm almost positive that the expression transcend the genre came up and we Assured her and ourselves that we would not be indulging in any of that shit, because uh, <laughs> I'm sure we've slipped now and again, and maybe we have used that or an analogous expression. I hope not, but I'm sure we have. But yeah, that's I think a real, you know, it's a it's something that the crime community bristles at, and I do as well, because to me, you know, a good story is a good story. First of all, it doesn't matter what genre it's in, and I and other people write crime fiction because we love and believe in it and believe that if a story is well told within the crime genre, that is the story reaching its full potential. There's nothing to limit it because it's within that genre of crime fiction. And so there's nothing to transcend. It's a story well told. And my own personal tastes and feeling are that the. Us, the potential for a story within the realm of crime fiction has as high or higher than almost any. I mean, the sort of classic and great stories that have been told often pertain to a crime and the giant human emotions that kind of swell up and get entangled when a crime happens. So to me, it's, yeah, it's a, a meaningless phrase. And I think the people who kind of continue to utter it are probably just not, I don't think they're malicious necessarily, just maybe they're not so familiar with, with uh, crime fiction and what it can really do. And maybe they're thinking of a different type of book or some sort of, you know, paperbacks they saw lying around their parents' uh, tables when they were younger and formed the notion of what was inside of those pages. You know, maybe they saw... I was think people maybe like saw the covers of like John D. McDonald, Travis McGee novels and just looked at the cover and thought, okay, I know what crime fiction is now, and rather than opening up those books and and learning what a crime novel could do. You know, you open up a John D. McDonald book and there's there's so much poetry and emotion in something like that that I think maybe somewhere in that split between the the notion people formed based on covers of books uh, uh, or you know the way and, they were marketed in the past and,
0: and what do they say not to judge
1: right can't judge it so i i i would say that the people who continue to use that phrase probably just aren't as familiar with the genre and that that's the optimistic spin i would give it so we as you know the editors of Crime Reads and people like you in your position, we can just we can help educate them on all the great stuff that's happening in crime fiction today.
0: We can just say they're ignorant, not stupid. <laughs> um, right. So, let's go back to an honest living, and let's talk about the book's narrator. Uh, he's a sole practitioner lawyer, a graduate of Columbia Law School, who quit his job at a top law firm, Debevoise and Plimpton. He lives in Brooklyn, Williamsburg, to be specific. And although he's never actually named, we do learn that his last name is Murphy and a misspelling of his first name on a baseball bat he receives as an attaboy reward, Dwight, is a few letters off his actual name. So this all points to Dwyer and which the name is familiar. Um, uh, Were you a difficult character to write?
1: (laughs) It's funny, even as you were just going through those details, I got lost somewhere in the, there about which ones were my biographical details and which are the narrator's biographical details. That's just, I I sort of have like this real affectionate spot for certain types of novels that play with the concept of auto-fiction uh, and uh, first person narrators that sort of share a biography with the narrator, him or herself. I, it's a type of novel that I both love and, uh, you know, can have some eye rolling uh, reactions towards. And I just felt like I wanted to, I found myself kind of writing about a washed out lawyer who had kind of left this corporate law world. And it's such a specific world to have left that type of corporate law in New York that more and more of the details of my life bled into his and then it also gives you an opportunity to kind of poke fun at yourself and play around with some of some of your own weaknesses and shortcomings and imagine uh, somewhere in this story his biography becomes his own and diverges from mine but finding where exactly where that diverging point Is was part of the fun for me as a writer. Uh, I don't think a reader doesn't really need to know anything about me uh, or where our stories align or don't align. Maybe they'll find it interesting, maybe not. But to me, it kind of fueled some of the writing to see, uh, to put a person who was me, but not me into some odd situations. And as a lawyer, uh, I'm a retired lawyer now, technically that's my status. I don't practice law. But there were those moments when I first left corporate law where you've got this very, in some ways, cushy, but also demanding and kind of cruel, uh, craven job that you're doing. And when you leave it, it can be quite traumatic and you can find yourself in some very odd circumstances as you're imagining what the rest of your career or life might look like but mostly it's just, it was a version of New York that I experienced that I wanted to be as true and authentic to it as I could. So, uh, you know, to do that, I had to have him working in a law firm that was very similar, but not quite the one that i worked for and uh, sort of passing by a lot of interesting casework because they really are, those law firms are a strange beast, uh, whether you're inside or outside of them. and it gives you a lot of access to a strange part of the city. I think like the classic PI tradition, uh, like private eye fiction. I think of like, a. I was reading a lot of Ross McDonald when I was working on this and the Lou Archer novels uh, of that era. And there's always this interesting phenomenon in a private eye novel where your guy or woman or PI is introduced into this world that you think they shouldn't necessarily have access to, but through some accident of employment or background, they are kind of granted access into these rarefied worlds, usually of elite moneyed corruption, and they kind of navigate their way through them with more or less skill. And I think that as a lawyer in New York, especially a lawyer at a certain type of law firm, you are essentially a 25 to 28 year old kid just out of school, probably not a lot of employment experience, and you are suddenly being thrown into this really rarefied world of money abuses of power corruption uh, and being asked to make sense of it and you're being asked to walk into a room and be a, a presence of authority of some kind or try to parse through what's going on and it gives you this really interesting perspective into the world the economy the city the class divisions the abuses and exploitations of people and how you get, you sort of, for lack of a better term, you kind of get a look behind the curtain in a way. And I think that's why I wanted to kind of bring a lawyer and with my background into this, this world of New York City corruption.
0: Well, it, it, you know, it is a very New York City novel. You know, as you mentioned, there's lots of books and there's sketchy real estate deals and there's uh, independent theater chains and mysterious warehouses filled with possibly illegally obtained objects. And uh, Caitlin Luce Baker, who's a bookseller in Seattle, uh, called your novel uh, a contemporary love song to the gritty, hard-boiled classic crime novels of the 50s. You mentioned Ross MacDonald, my personal favorite. And I agree, but I also read a universal story of a search for identity, finding it, losing it and everything in between. So that's kind of a feat. So kudos.
1: Thank you. I I'm really glad to hear you say that because yes, in a lot of ways, this was a New York novel, but I think the way I was conceiving of it is it is kind of a coming of age or a search for identity novel that I hope captures something about the way we experience the world. Usually in our right now, usually in our late twenties or so that, uh, you're searching for what the rest of your life is going to look like. And in that sense, the story could have taken place in uh, LA, San Francisco, New York, Miami, any number of cities. I think it's an urban you know, environment probably, but or any number of places, it just happens that where I experienced those things was in New York City. And so to make it authentic, I felt like I, I needed to, to set it there, this version of the story, which to me was really about that kind of listlessness, restlessness, ennui, uncertainty to that period in your life, uh, in, whether it's in your late 20s or another time, but when you are, you've are, you taken a job right out of school, maybe, and it'd be a good job. It might not be. It might be well-paid or it might not be, but you've you finally decided to the hell with it. You're going to do what you want with your life and not be not uh, not toil away in this shit forever, and you're going <laughs> to figure out what the rest of your life might mean to you and so that's the period that I wanted to kind of capture this really like you know hopefully existentially searching period that's also just kind of fun you don't really know what the next piece of your life is going to look like and you're sort of you walk around every corner wondering whether uh you know there might be somebody there to fall in love with or a bar that's going to become your your new regular or a job that's going to uh pop itself up and maybe get you thrown into jail or maybe make you rich or maybe knock you right out of the city, out your ass. So it's that kind of period of possibility that's sort of balanced somewhere between hope and dread.
0: But it definitely is, uh, an, an Honest Living definitely is noir. It's a 21st century style though. Um, and, and I think it's Cheek by Jowl with Megan Abbott and Stuart Arnan and Lou Burney. And one thing about noir, it looks at its surroundings through a glass darkly, as you talked about, this sort of walk through New York, but but oblique. Um, The novel's set a few years back, but everything and everyone in it is on the cusp of change, except Ulysses, maybe, (laughs) but he's our guide and he needs to be timeless.
1: I think that's a perfect way to capture it. And I to me the novel, I wanted it to be kind of elegiac in a way. And that is sort of my version of noir. Maybe I know everybody, all those authors you just mentioned, I love so much. So I'm so glad so glad to hear you mention, you know, Megan Abbott and Lou Bernie and these people. And one thing that ties a lot of that work together in my my mind too is that they are seeing the world in this really dark way, but there is a wit uh, to the perspective with which they see it. And that's something that I think maybe gets lost sometimes when people talk about noir and the tradition where there is a a real bleak, cynical uh, note to the history of noir. But I think it's also important for there to be some perspective thrown into that story that can see it with a sense of humor or some sort of uh, bigger perspective. Maybe it's just a cynical laugh, maybe it's a nod off. It doesn't need to be cracking jokes. Usually it's not really cracking jokes about the unfortunate. It's more about accepting uh, a fallen world with a certain uh, resignation and finding a way to enjoy themselves in the meantime. So I'd, I'd like to think that that's some of what unifies this type of noir, but you know i wanted to write something that was fun and funny as well and hopefully hopefully people are in on the joke we'll see uh, once they get a chance to read it whether there are any laughs in there but to me i that's my version of noir it's that version where people can stop off to to dance in a club and you know tell a few jokes and shoot some shit in a bar afterwards or at a diner in a booth that's that's the version i love
0: well you do have the vicissitudes of life uh Sort of biting your uh, narrator and a n- number of people on the ankle, and that's that's pretty funny. <laughs> I like that. Um, so this is traditionally my last question, and I'm asking if you're working on another novel and if Dwyer Murphy is going to make a return, or are you going off in a different direction?
1: There is, there there are going to be more novels. Yes, we there's. There's one in the books and I am now, uh, I'm at work on a sequel for this now that is actually uh, set in Miami and is a bit more of an Elmore Leonard homage as I think we, we mentioned when we were beginning our conversation. Uh, I, I want to bring some of these same characters into a new setting and kind of a, a new world of noir. So it, in my mind, the, the sort of guiding lights of an honest living. Uh, I was reading a lot of Ross McDonald and Margaret Millar at the time, a married couple uh, who were both timeless, iconic crime writers. And that is a lot of what influenced this novel for me, even though it's a New York city novel, that's the, that was some of the, the vein of noir that I was trying to tap into. And with the sequel, they're, to be coming to Florida and uh, it's going to tap into, I think, a little bit more of an Elmore Leonard and uh, vibe and certain sort of Latin American uh, crime novels that I love as well.
0: Well, thanks, Dwyer. Thanks for the time and for talking about An Honest Living and I look forward to the next.
1: Thank you so much. This is a real treat to get to sp- to talk with you, and I just I love learning more of crime fiction and literature through you know through your work. So this is this is a real treat. Thank you so much.